Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening to Your Neighbor, a Priest, a podcast featuring commentary and theological reflection on local news and events in Southwest Washington and the larger themes that impact all of us as we wrestle with the challenges of life, and in particular American life, in the 21st century. I'm Father Nick Mather, Rector of St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Longview, Washington. I am your neighbor, and I am a priest. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome a number of guests for a special roundtable discussion on how social services and programs create a more healthy community. Together, we discuss what we do well in our community, where we can grow as a community, and how those listening can get involved in making our community a safer and healthier place to call home for all of our neighbors. Thank you all for joining me today for a conversation on the importance of social services and social programs for the health of a community, what it means to have these available to a community, um, what our community in particular needs, um, maybe some of the things that we are lacking in our community and some of the things that we do do well in our community and have made it uh, a real difference and impact in our community. I want to welcome a number of guests uh, to us today and they will introduce themselves uh, when they jump in to share uh, throughout the course of our conversation today. So thank you all for being here. So the first question that I just want to put kind of out on the table and give everyone a a chance to to jump in and and share is uh, just a general question and that is what type uh, or what do social services and programs contribute to a community in general and how do we see these types of services and programs working here in Longview and Cowlitz County? Hi I'm Diane Cooper from the Family Health Center. Um, I think that in this day and age social services and health services provide additional support to individuals and families that maybe 100 or 150 years ago they got from their extended family or their smaller communities. Um, Social services by no means um, replace those very important social connections with our friends, family, and neighbors, though. Um, Ethically, we all as neighbors have I think a responsibility to do what we can to care for each other. Um, I think social services in Cowlitz County are pretty robust. Uh, We have a lot of social services that other communities don't have and we by and large work very well together to try to maximize what we all can do. I'm Jeff Ritchie from uh, Lower Columbia College and also have a practice um, of psychotherapy here in town uh, in Longview. Um, I, uh, I think social services are a, a, a vital part of any kind of society um, where people are going to uh, live cooperatively. Um, not everybody is going to have the same means to produce. Not everybody is going to have the same needs to be met. 
And sometimes uh, those who uh, have means to produce more are gonna be asked to provide uh, for some of the people who, whose needs are a bit higher. The troubling thing about the way that I see social services working in our area is that there is a political and a conservative religious contingent that works very hard to oppose any kind of new innovations. Um, for example, the reason we're having this call is because I was responding to Father Dick on a, a Facebook feed where he was really, you know, expressing his disappointment with both the county and the city for not applying for a grant for homeless shelters just because there could be no no exclusions or barriers uh, as part of the, the grant money. Um, this is Allison Maddox, the pastor at Longview United Methodist Church. And um, I think one of the things that social services and programs contribute to a community is they address the need for a community to be healthy. And the healthiest communities are those that reach out to the people who are most vulnerable and in need in their society. The, the communities that ignore those needs end up being very unhealthy for all people. So I see that as a, a basic need for all people within a community to be able to address the needs of those that are most vulnerable. Um, and there have been times that those needs have been addressed by various institutions and agencies. Um, as with the growth in population, the growth in concerns has occurred. And so therefore maybe what has been exclusively the purview of one particular agency or institution can no longer be that just solely that agency or institution. It takes a conglomeration of people addressing issues together uh, and so there's a lot of intersection between those agencies and institutions to address these needs um, and it, that requires some creativity and imagination because rather than keeping on doing it the way it has always been done in the past or only barely dipping into how we might be creatively answering some of these needs it's going to take us working across a, a, a cross section of um, and working in institutions working together that maybe at one time uh, were at odds with one another, but need to keep a focus of the health of the community as a whole. Chuck Hendrickson, Executive Director of Love Overwhelming. I think that within the social services in our in our county. Although there are gaps, uh, you know, with shelter, I mean, that's, that's a gap we see right now. But as in large, there are agencies that are working to together collaboratively that offer holistic services to our community for those that are in need. And that's one of the things that's really good um, and great about our community and, some, and those organizations in large that are working together uh, to offer holistic services uh, to help people move forward in whatever it is that their uh, recovery or, or life needs are. And this is uh, Dave McClay, from, a CEO from Columbia Wellness. You know, I, I will kind of echo what um, Diane and Chuck said. I, I do think there are um, quite a number of services here. Um, 
and I, but I also believe that, you know, one size shoe doesn't fit everything. And, you know, you can have a, a shoe try to do too many things. And, um, and I think there should be a lot of organizations helping people um, in their road to recovery or whatever that is. Um, and so I do think it's important that we have choice and, and options in our community. And, and I believe we do have that um, and we have a pretty good mix. Uh, my name is Pastor Liz Carney. I'm a uh, pastor here locally in Longview, have worked with some of the folks on this call and um, working on the cold weather shelter. Um, and I, I think many people have said this much better than I have, but when we, when we care for those in our society who, as Jeff said, are not able to produce according to the American capitalist paradigm, right? Um, when we care for those who are the most vulnerable in our community, it actually helps everyone. Um, it makes the entire fabric, social fabric of our community stronger. Um, I think, you know, for so long, the, some of our, this gets into probably a larger philosophical conversation about what many people believe it means to be American, but so many folks have assumed that if you help the your top performers in the society it will trickle down <laughs> to those who uh, won't be able to provide for themselves in the same way that um, those of us who have more privilege uh, on all kinds of different levels uh, are able to but really uh, in my experience and in everything that I've learned about how the world works <laughs> actually uh, when you when you care for quote unquote the bottom the folks who um, are going to get missed by a lot of the things that we have in place in our society. Um, it, it makes the whole community a lot healthier. So, um, and I think that social fabric, the pandemic has really revealed the various um, vulnerabilities and holes that we have in so many of our systems that are, I think, more robust in a lot of other countries. And I think we've seen that play out in the pandemic with how well or how not well societies have been able to cope with COVID-19. Um, so from my perspective, that's that's a really great reason to have some of these robust, robust services in our community and why I'm passionate about that, uh, as so many people are on this call already too. So building off of that and that that understanding that, you know, we, we do have some robust programs, we do have some robust services, and it's important for the community to uphold those and, and to really encourage those and support them for the betterment of our community. How can those who are listening to this episode come alongside uh, these different programs and organizations to encourage them in their work, perhaps even enable them to enhance their work to, an, to another level? Um, what, what can people do uh, to support this work? This is Chuck Hendrickson, Low Overwhelming Executive Director. Uh, so yeah, I think a, a big thing is assuming uh, the best out of organizations and that we are trying to do what we can to help people move forward. And if there are pieces that you're not sure about, you have questions about maybe, just maybe, you read something on social media that may not quite be 100% uh, truth, uh, reach out to those organizations. In my opinion and what I've seen and with my um, examples of, of working with these organizations, we are all very open and transparent and we want to get the correct information out there. So if you guys have questions or anything like that, 
don't hesitate to reach out. That's one of the ways that people can have that education of what's going on in our community to be able to get it out to the people that, that may need those programs. This is uh, Pastor Liz again. I would also say get involved. So many of these organizations have tangible ways that everyday citizens like us can jump into the work that they are doing. And I know that once you have, as one of our colleagues on the cold weather shelter team, I remember he said this last year, um, he and then I, this resonated with me too, we needed to have skin in the game. And when you start to have a personal investment in the work that um, various social services offer in the community, um, then when those things start to come under critique from folks who may disagree with you, you actually know the folks receiving services and um, surviving because of those services. You're, you're aware of the inner workings of an organization. You take ownership of it. It's a way of taking ownership in the community. So calling some of these social services and actually saying, how can I, here's what I'm good at. How can I use those gifts to support you in the work you're doing and start volunteering? Yeah, and I want to jump in here um, because I think one of the things that I personally experienced in volunteering and getting involved, um, and this is specifically with the severe weather shelter, uh, but actually volunteering while shelter was in operation and seeing those who were coming to receive shelter, um, is understanding who's actually receiving the services and programs that we have in our community. Um, and I think there's an understanding of who is accessing these things that is not actually reality to who is really accessing the services and programs that are available. Um, and that really made a big difference in my understanding of who is in need in our community. Um, and uh, it further developed as well. Um, my own child went uh, through the Progress Center um, due to a speech delay and getting to see that particular program uh, at work in our community and the different families that are impacted by that work and then doing some work with the school district and seeing how the Broadway Learning Center furthers that intervention work across all spectrums of our community uh, was really interesting to see how far social programs and services actually reach in our community. Uh, just a, a quick response to that, um, Nick. I, I, you know, I, it's very important to shatter stereotypes. Uh, it's very important that people understand the truth of, of the people that we work with. Um, and, and, and it goes, and it kind of speaks to um, one of those prats or points refuted a thousand times which, uh, let's see, it, it can be summed up in a couple of different ways. Um, uh, why should I pay for somebody who didn't earn it? Uh, God helps those who help themselves. Um, what are some other, oh, pick yourself up by your bootstrap, the bootstrap mentality kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and I think that seeing people as human beings first is, is uh, uh, and, and getting to see people as human beings first means getting around the people and experiencing their human selves. But I just want to stick you a little bit there because I actually don't care who's receiving services because for me, my morality is based on human well-being. Am I increasing it? Am I doing anything to prevent it uh, from happening? Am I causing any undue harm? Am I doing what I can to reduce undue harm? And uh, so frankly, 
I don't care if, you know, if all we're serving are the drug addicts and sex offenders, which we're not. We're not. I mean, that's just a, a portion of, of who we serve because um, they're people. And I don't think that, uh, that uh, because you uh, smoked some crack today or shot some heroin means that you have to live in life-threatening conditions tonight. That's where I come from. This is Dave from Columbia Wellness. I, I, I'll speak for us. I, I think um, traditionally, um, as a nonprofit, we don't do a very good job of marketing ourselves and, and the good things that we've done and who we've impacted and some of the positive stories. We just kind of kind of move forward and, and do what we do. And I think there's a there's a price that you pay doing that. And I think we've tried to get better at that. Um, but I think traditionally that's been like that across the board. And um, I think as a as a nonprofit we need to get some of our successes out there so people hear it. You know, I agree with Jeff that it, it doesn't matter who someone is, we should be helping people because they're people. Um, you know, and from the Christian perspective, they're our neighbor and we are called to love our neighbor, regardless of who they are or what walk of life they're on or where they come from. I mean, it's the story of, you know, the different parables and Jesus sharing the story of the Good Samaritan of showing it doesn't matter what you might think of someone, that person can blow your mind and, and be someone you don't think they could be. Um, and it's because people are people. Uh, and if we just treat people as people and care for and love and provide for people, that makes a big difference in a community. Yeah, that's Chuck Hendrickson, Low Overwhelming. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And I think that that's one of the things that we saw in our severe weather shelter is um, engaging with people right where they right where they were and building that rapport, which then leads to trust. And and when they when people trust you, they're more willing to say, hey, I need help. I, I'm ready to go right now. And then our staff are ready to go arm in arm, hand in hand. Let's go. Let's move forward with you. Because uh, when people aren't motivated and you're trying to push them there, um, doesn't usually work out. But when we build that rapport and that trust, as we saw over and over again from people engaging in uh, with people at the severe weather shelter or uh, wherever they may be going, that that leads to richer opportunities for the holistic services to take place to move forward. And and that's what it's all about. I mean, right? We want to meet people right where they are, but we want to help them move to where that they want to be in their life. Chuck, do you do you think that that kind of rapport building would be possible with a a more permanent um, uh, sheltering situation that was indeed low barrier and accessible by anyone? Yeah, I do believe that, and I think that even uh, even going beyond that, a hosted encampment, which in my opinion just looks like an emergency shelter that is done in tents and outside, I think that that is is an ability to be able to. Uh, continue that report because you're meeting people's basic immediate needs, not only shower, laundry, and a place to stay, but that human interaction of some positive interaction. Um, and, that, and that's a big deal to people, in my opinion. I, I think that's a daily essential for, for individuals. And to have it in one spot and one location where all the service providers can go there to work with those, uh, with, the, with the individuals that are there, that, that creates uh, more opportunities for services, housing, uh, inpatient detox, harm reduction, I mean, all of that stuff. And I know that at least the, the agencies that, that we're partnering with, I mean, Family Health Center and, and uh, Columbia Wellness that are on the line, 
there that's that's what it's all about for all of us and so that's it's really it would be very very helpful to have a place like that for sure i think uh we learned uh we hosted last winter the day warming shelter for folks and uh we really learned a lot from the folks that came and used that service it helped us tweak little things in our programs that we hadn't even thought were barriers you know just from conversation with them we got to know uh, those folks and were able to hook many of them in uh, much better to help improve their health so I agree. I mean, it's it's about being there for people and being there consistently, um, and building that trust. Uh, the hit or miss that sometimes happens now, um, if folks are so isolated and so just exhausted from trying to meet their basic needs, they can't even sometimes think of what help they need much less be able to use our services so anything we can do and my folks that work here will probably kill me they hate it when i walk in in the morning and say i had a dream and this is not martin luther king it's like i think of all kinds of crazy things i think we should do um, and we've done a, a good good number of them uh, and some have worked and some haven't, but if you don't dream and you don't think outside the box and we don't all work together, uh, we're going to continue having what we have and having the people that are spewing hate all over Facebook um, ruling what our community can do to impact things positively. Diane, this is Dave McClay again. I, I, I agree with that and I think when you, you meet people um, where they're at, I think it, it gives you a different lens of how you view um, the services that they need um, versus the services you assume they need and how they want to be served um, versus, you know, hey, this is what they need from us and, and tailoring some of that service delivery to what is needed. As we've talked to, uh, about already, and you know, some of the, more pressing concerns in our community and, and areas where we're perhaps lacking the most in is how we address homelessness in our community. Um, and so I want to just put out on on the table for for those to jump in, you know, how can we as a community better address homelessness in our community? How do we uh, help those who are experiencing homelessness? How do we uh, help our community understand what it means to be homeless and, and what people experience when they are homeless? Um, and how can we maybe bring different models of programs or services that have had proven success in other areas into our own community? Uh, this is Pastor Liz. Uh, the, the first shift that I feel desperately needs to happen in our community, and I think there's a lot of service providers who are already on board with this, but getting the rest of the community to come along is moving to a housing first model of addressing homelessness. That's um, so many of you I, on this call have spoken so eloquently about this in public meetings and in our own conversations. And I think until that shift happens, I think we're gonna continue to see 
um, so many of the gaps that we're seeing now. I think uh, there's a, a mental shift that needs to happen. Um, it, it's always mystifying to me why it doesn't resonate with more people that if you address the, what is it, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you start by addressing the most basic human needs of a place to sleep, clean water to drink, food to eat, if you address those concerns first, then you start to open up new pathways in relation as you build that relationship and new things become possible about the kinds of care that person is able to receive, the kinds of recovery they're able to enter into because um, they actually had a good night's sleep. They actually were able to take a shower. Um, I don't feel like that's so far out of many people's experiences if they've ever had to stay up all night at the airport. I mean, it's such a poor um, comparison to make, but it's always mind boggling to me how often that is missing from this conversation. Folks are so convinced that people need to, as Jeff was saying, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get some things done and then we will give them shelter, then we will give them housing. I can't think of anything productive I could do in my life without the place that I live, a place to go to the bathroom safely and hygienically, a place to take a shower, a place to sleep well at night. Um, I would not be a functioning human without those things. So I think until we shift our focus and start to, you know, rapidly house people and, uh, get them into a stable situation, we won't be able to address so many of the other issues that are facing them that are huge challenges and that so many of the folks even on this call and their service provision are doing a great job of addressing in our community. Um, and they could, I think all of you could address them more effectively if we got people into a stable housing situation. I'm recalling that one of the folks from the local legal aid board talked about um, I remember in a public meeting, she was talking about, yeah, the conversations I have with my clients about their legal battles, so much of what is coming up is that they don't have a reliable place to keep, to store their belongings that is secure. And so until they have that, we can't work with them on these other things that are stopping them from getting into how, you know, more housing, stopping them from getting a job, stopping them from, you know, anyway, all of that. Once you get people housed, I think there's so much more that you can do uh, with folks on their recovery journeys and anyway. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Liz, uh, Jeff Ritchie again. Um, not only when you meet people's basic needs, do you open up pathways for them to uh, meet social needs and, and um, you know, act more um, socially appropriate according to how our society is as they should. Um, when you meet people's basic needs, some of those problems actually disappear. All right, the anxiety, the depression, some of the, the substance use problems, poof, poof. Um, and uh, you know, I, I've often said, um, sometimes in public, that if you see a person laying in a doorway and you say to them, you must get a job, but you do not yourself have a job to offer them or are unwilling to give it to them, then your advice is useless. I wholeheartedly agree. Liz and Jeff with you and um, at the same time think that one of the pieces that sometimes gets missed is the need for community and my understanding and talking with some people about what then becomes a challenge maybe when someone receives housing themselves is that their need for community brings along um, providing housing maybe for other people who 
are still dealing with some challenges and so then <laughs> that the housing ends up not working out because maybe some of those people in that community that they brought into the housing with them weren't ready to make some changes um, and I think that the community piece of of having people who maybe have been in an encampment and have uh, some we, we might deem it somewhat dysfunctional but at least it has provided some sense of community that that piece cannot be overstated um, in meeting people's needs and um, I've mentioned before in in just in the vein of Diane talking about the the dreaming there's a um, intentional community called community first village in Austin Texas that's a 51 acre master planned community specifically for people who were experiencing um, un, didn't have housing and it affords affordable permanent housing and I think one of the things that we in our community are challenged by is affordable housing. Chuck Hendrickson. I, so first I, I want to say there are there are different phases of homelessness that people are in and and with that there are different programs that are out there and you can see that in the the middle of the road and and the people that may be more housing ready there are a lot of uh, there are programs for them in, in different places and however there are a huge there is a huge need for people who don't fit into those types of programs and so that's where you see a lot of the the creativity within the different agencies and programs to be able to get people served uh, we love that. I, we love that we can work with like Family Health Center and Columbia Wellness for people that may not quite fit that mold, but they have times where we can bring them in for their behavioral health appointment or for their medical appointment where they've set up for uh, um, just for in that case, you know, for walk-ins. And so it's having those, seeing those barriers and then trying to uh, creatively fill those needs. And there is a big thing working together. And so um, although there are a lot of barriers still and a lot of needs within um, within the the people that are unhoused, um, there's still a lot of good things going on within that population and within those services. If I remember correctly, I, I believe I was told that um, some of the people that are ready for the Family Promise Program, which is one of the service providers in the community that there are people that are ready to move into that program but uh, that means some of the families that are currently in the program need to be able to move on into their own housing and the housing's not there um, so I, I I don't know enough about how you create affordable housing for people but um, I know that having had several congregation members who needed to find affordable housing, um, it took months, months and months for them to find affordable housing. And thankfully they were, uh, you know, I, I can think of at least two people who had someone within the congregation who was willing to let them come stay with them um, while they were looking for something that they could get into. And they were looking for section eight housing and they're just it, it, it just it took months for something to come up for them 
And that is uh, affordable housing, as we stated, is a huge issue. I mean, one last summer, there were over 70 households that had housing choice vouchers, and they had to stop uh, looking for housing because no one could find housing. They had to stop giving out the vouchers. They shut down everything. Uh, it's since opened up since then. But I mean, that's a lot. It is saturated. And I, the last I saw, we were at 0.8% uh, of vacancy for affordable housing. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about Family Promise for just a second. Um, you know, it's this, it's a wonderful program, and uh, it does a lot of really great work. Um, and it's a you know it's it's fairly new in our community. It's it's been in operation for just over a year. Um, but one of the things that certainly has been a struggle, you know, Family Promise in terms of the people that are accessing the services they provide, the families who become Family Promise families, are people who are the best candidates to receive housing and to get work and to move from a place of being unhoused back into stable housing. These are family units that are, that are the, really the best candidates for that. And they're struggling to place families into units because there just isn't affordable housing available to people uh, in our community, particularly families, um, you know, and, and we've, I know there's been families have gone through there with single parents who are working full time and providing for their children and still can't find a place to live that's affordable and safe for their family. Uh, and that goes to show that even in an organization that is actively working to house people in our community, how long it takes to get that to be a success. Um, and I, that, that clearly shows an area where our community is lacking uh, in, a, in an availability standpoint. One of the things I'm excited about that our congregation is doing is we've had a vacant lot on the other half of our land for, you know, since the seventies, since they bought the land, they thought maybe we'll expand the church someday. And, uh, but uh, actually just in the last few weeks, we finally got it approved through our Presbytery, our larger regional body, body to be able to donate that land to housing opportunities of Southwest Washington so that they can build affordable housing there. Um, because our church has vacant lands that we can donate. We do not have case managers. Um, we do not have uh, the kind of wherewithal to be landlords, but housing opportunities of Southwest Washington are, you know, used to be the housing authority. They have all that, they do that really well. So what we can do well as a community of faith is be a really good neighbor and provide kind of a, a social fabric for those folks to be welcomed into. We can be checking in with them once that housing is built and find ways that we can serve them. Um, but we don't have to, but we can let housing opportunities of Southwest Washington, this incredible organization, do what they're good at um, and fill a need that they had. So it's, I think there's so many of those puzzle pieces that I'm excited when all of us have these conversations together to figure out who can provide what. I know that, you know, St. Stephen's is another great example. I know that they, they had that empty parish hall space that they could use overnight for uh, youth who are experiencing homelessness. So they were able to open up their space, but then the staff could provide some care for the, for the you know, youth coming into that space and their families. And um, I think there's a lot of creativity that can be sparked from, instead of asking 
of lamenting what we don't have, of saying, what do we have? And what kind of creative combinations can we experiment with? Because that's what, it's all experimental. And we need more experience, experiments like that in an age where things are unprecedented, right? We need to try different things because the old ways of addressing these problems either haven't worked, and we see that now because of the pandemic, or things are different because of the pandemic. And so we're gonna have to try new experimental ways of addressing these issues. So that gives me hope. And hopefully the more things like that that start happening, it'll sort of spark creativity in other places. I have not spent a long time in this community. I've only been here a little over four years, but in my, I actually think there's a huge amount of trauma that has been experienced by many members of our community, particularly around addiction. Um, almost most families that I've engaged with here in town um, from all across the political spectrum, because it, there's no, um, addiction doesn't just target one certain kind of person, right? Um, have had some family member, some person close to them, it could be themselves, who have actually lived in addiction before, um, or lost someone because of addiction. And I think there's so much unaddressed trauma in our community around that. Um, and I think what that trauma can lead so many folks to do is to find a convenient um, scapegoat placeholder, which I think often is folks who are experiencing homelessness, unfortunately, to kind of be a stand-in and representative for um, those people who caused this pain in my life. Um, and I think that that gets wrapped up in these conversations so often. It's kind of, for me, it seems like it's kind of under the surface of all the arguing and debating is this um, really deep pain and hurt. Um, I'm sure it comes from multiple sources, but I think specifically around addiction is where I've seen it in my pastoral work with people. And so they say, well, I don't want those kinds of people here. I don't want to serve those kinds of people. And so there, there's two crats in this. Number one, um, uh, uh, that uh, services attract service recipients. Um, I, I, I've plowed through the social science literature and it, there seems to be a consistent number of people, no matter where you are, that are transient. They come and they go, usually around 15%. 85% are people who live here they're, you know, or wherever it is that they were. So it's not that a bunch of people are going to flock to the area. Um, and the other one is um, that if, uh, if we're so afraid of having uh, sex offenders in our community, well, why don't we provide a place where they can be? For example, the sex offenders who live next to you right now and who are registered um, and that they just happen to have a house so you don't see them out on the street, um, uh, drug addicts and alcoholics who manage to stay housed because they have family or they have good jobs and are somehow functional still, um, you know, they live right next door to us. Something that was brought up earlier that uh, started rattling around in my brain had to do with um, the, the monetary cost to having people who um, repetitively need services that we're not used, we're only used to taking a look at budgets and services provided and the cost of them as the upfront cost 
we're not used to taking a look at the behind cost and it made me wonder if it would be um would behoove all of us to start talking about and taking a look at what the the back end costs are when people are denied those services up front because it's too costly um i want to just before we end our conversation today, I want to thank everyone again for, for joining in. And I want to kind of put a last question out on the table for folks to engage with and, and um, you know, uh, an opportunity to dream, uh, as, as Diane said earlier. Um, and that, that question is, is you know, where, where do you see our community moving forward? Um, or what are your dreams for our community moving forward when it comes to the services and programs that we can offer and uh, want to offer and how might we go about seeing that come become reality uh this is pastor Liz again and i said it earlier but earlier but i will say it again i think we just need to try things we need to experiment and we need to constantly be evaluating how those experiments went and then we need to try something new and i think secondly um we need to appreciate and we need to value the work of all the different service providers in our community. I think I heard Father Nick say this in a recent city council meeting that um, our community seems to operate out of this scarcity mindset, like there's not enough. We don't have enough to address the problems in our community. Um, and the reality is that there's actually abundance. There are uh, lots of people who care. There's actually lots of wealth in our community to be shared. Um, and I think so often, uh, people see that there, we have to choose either or like it's this organization or that organization instead of all models being welcome and celebrated because there's such a spectrum of folks in need of support. Um, and I think until we're willing to celebrate every single organization that is doing the work along that spectrum. Um, I think until we do that, I think we're going to continue to keep running our head against a wall. Kind of piggybacking off of what Liz said, this is Allison. I think there is also a false dichotomy that is set up, um, not just in this community, it's, it's a nationwide false dichotomy, which is you either have business growth or you have social services. <laughs> and it's, it's as if you can't have both. And Say it again, Allison. Yeah, it's just a false dichotomy. That is patently untrue. Um, they they work together, and um, that could be one of the most key components of us becoming the healthiest community that we can be. I think for for me, for you know, dreaming big and what we see out there is is again going back to a place where people are that there's a space for all of our organizations all service providers to to offer those holistic services i think that's a, a real big thing and i think that that can be done it can be done in a low barrier model i think that the severe weather shelter uh the, the last year approved that with all of the outreach to the community the good neighbor agreement um, all of the components that we worked on through for months uh taking the input and, and being able to implement those uh, I think that's that's a big deal, and I think that moving forward, that's a, a, at least one of those things that I see as as a big dream that would have a space for that a homeless encampment and a 
and a place for all the service providers to come and offer those services. Of course, affordable housing is, uh, increase is the number one thing we need. We, we understand that, but, uh, but we need to see that um, other people can get into those services. Uh, and, and I believe that it can be done in an organized, efficient manner, even while it's done in low barrier. So I would like to see um, services in every single neighborhood. I'd like to see mixed housing in every single neighborhood. Um, I don't, while many of our richer neighborhoods are beautiful, um, they lack some vibrancy because they don't have the rich mixture of folks that they could have. I'd like to see um, that just like elementary school um, areas that folks can walk to get services close to where they live or close to where they work. Um, Jeff uh, here. Um, one of the areas in, uh, that, that um, uh, my family and I um, began working on um, when we got here, uh, just a little bit before um, Liz, we, we got here in 2014, uh, was visibility. And, and the, you know, that mixed housing is, is a, is a piece of visibility, you, you know. When you see um, a person as your neighbor every day, it's harder to have that impression or that stereotype or that cookie cutter uh, mentality about them. Um, so uh, now uh, and our work has primarily been with uh, the LGBT community and sort of raising the vibration in, in that area in our community. And, and we certainly have, um, um, uh, found some great collaborators who have helped us to, um, uh, you know, at least before this year uh, and COVID-19 put on not only the, the first public um, pride events in Longview, but uh, the, the biggest one, they just got bigger year after year. Um, and I think that that kind of thing is important. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, mixing, mixing people together and having uh, people see each other as neighbors, uh, I think will go a long way in, um, in that model. Well, thank you all for uh, what you've shared today, uh, your uh, expert experiences and the, the hopes and um, potential for our community that, that does exist out there. Um, and it's something that we can as a community engage in and work towards um, if we choose to. Uh, and I, I think that's a big part of what it ultimately comes down to is we have to, we have to make that choice. Thank you for joining me today for Your Neighbor, a Priest. I look forward to our next conversation at the intersections of our world and the holy, which will be coming to you in two weeks, September 21st, where we'll discuss the role of social media in our society and culture and what it means to use social media faithfully. Until then, continue to stay home, stay healthy, wear your mask, be well, and may God's unending, all-encompassing peace and love be with you all.